0: God's grace is sufficient for you, Christian. What a blessing to be reminded of that this morning. That's the only reason we're here today, is because of God's grace. God's grace changing our hearts to love Him and desire to worship Him, and His grace in His providence of bringing us here to gather with His people again on this Lord's Day. So we We give him praise that he is a gracious God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As many of you know, one of our elders, Mike Walpole, and his wife Becky have recently moved permanently to Beaufort, South Carolina. Now Mike is still working in Atlanta, but they're not going into the office at this point, and so he... After selling his house, has moved to a house he had uh, he and Becky had built there in Beaufort where he is now a resident, where he is now living. He, uh, you probably, some of you may remember that he posted this on Realm some time ago. So many of you probably already know this and have read it, but I just wanted to make this announcement for everyone here as the body is gathered that uh, Mike will no longer be serving as an elder of Four Corners because he will be. He will be moving away, or has moved away, but uh, Mike will be around. Mike and Becky will be around from time to time, and so you will still see them, but he will no longer be serving as an elder of Four Corners Church. So uh, I think all of us will agree that Mike and Becky will be greatly missed. We love them. We pray the Lord's blessing on them as they find a new church there, and as they find ways, which I know uh, God will use them, ways to serve another local church there. We are thankful to God. We we want to give him praise, just as Paul did at the beginning of Romans. He praised God for his readers and their faith, and we just want to give God praise here corporately for this brother and this sister and God's grace through them and how he has used them to serve our church. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We are in verses 25 to 29 today. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 29. For some time now, we have been in some pretty heavy verses. Maybe you were thinking, you know, when we got to Romans, um, that uh, may- maybe it would be uh, just a real lift me up. And of course, it is when we consider The message of Romans is the gospel. But it is striking to us, isn't it, that the very first chunk, large chunk, of this book on the good news is filled with really bad news. And it's heavy. It sits on us heavy. It's not just a couple of weeks. It's week after week after week. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up through chapter 3, verse 20. It is all about exposing sin, universal human sinfulness and condemnation. This is the problem. This is the plight of humankind. Everywhere you look, no matter what race or culture, where you find humans, you find sin and God's wrath upon it. But as we come to the very end of chapter 2 today, we're in the last verses of this chapter, we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. We, We sort of come around a corner, and we begin to see this light in distance, as we look down into chapter 3, as we leave chapter 2 and look down the tunnel of chapter 3, we start to see this really bright light. And that bright light begins with chapter 3, verse 21, where verses 21 and 22 say, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the beautiful bright light at the end of this long tunnel. That runs from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to 320. But even before we get to that glorious solution to the problem. We need to recognize that this opening section that we're in right now, this, this long section, 118 to 320, is not all doom and gloom. We may, it may very much seem like that. It may very much seem like doom and gloom. It may very much seem heavy. But it is not all doom and gloom. As we've seen throughout chapter 2, Paul mentions the grace at work in the lives of believers as he is discussing human sin. So he's he's going through and he's describing human sin and describing judgment for sin, but there are these little glimmers of gospel grace throughout this portion. Yes, as chapter 1, 18 to 32 tells us, the Gentile pagan nations are a godless, depraved, Feudal, foolish bunch. Their hearts are, as Paul describes them, darkened and corrupted in their deeds. Yes, as chapter 2 tells us, the Jews are hypocritical, presumptuous, prideful, and disobedient. They do the very same things that they judge the Gentiles for doing, and they cannot rely on. On their Jewishness to save them. God's judgment falls on all. Both Gentile and Jew. It is impartial. He will judge them both alike. In accordance with their deeds. Yes. The conclusion of chapter 3 verse 10 stands. None is righteous. No not one. So yes. This is the message of this portion. But. All of that is apart from Christ. And even before Paul gets to the solution, even before he gets to that light at the end of the tunnel, in chapter 3, verse 21, he introduces those who are in Christ. Little glimmers, as I said before, of gospel grace in the midst of human sin. And he does this in three places in chapter 2 that I want to point you to. And, and let me just say this. I think this is one of the reasons why these portions are misinterpreted. is because historically, even among many of the interpreters that I respect most, historically, because Paul is dealing with sin and judgment in 118 to 320, these little glimmers of gospel hope, are, are sort of read over because they're seen exclusively within this section. And what I would argue is what I'm about to read to you, these three passages in chapter 2, are, are Paul anticipating the discussion of the Christian life, of the impact of the gospel that he will get into later. In other words, we should not rigidly see this section as about sin and judgment. But it is Paul describing sin and judgment, but anticipating His description of the gospel. So here they are. Three little gospel glimmers that we've already seen in this otherwise heavy, heavy, heavy section. Verses 7 and 10. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. There will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Who is Paul talking about there? Christians. Verses 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is one of those passages that I think has been massively misinterpreted. It's been understood as the law of, of conscience written on the heart of Gentiles. And what many interpreters say is this is a hypothetical person, a hypothetical Gentile standing next to a Jew. What I would say is the verses I just read and these verses are speaking of Christians. They're little glimmers of gospel hope as Paul strikes against Jewish superiority. As he strikes against this sense sense of Jewish privilege and advantage. He's showing, look, Gentiles saved through the gospel. And here's another, finally. Today in verses 26 to 27. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Once again, who is Paul talking about there? Christians. So we're not left without grace, without hope without encouragement, without reminders of the gospel, even as we are down in the dirt, in the mud, in the pit with this section. So let's look at our passage for today. A passage very much focused on sin and judgment, yes, but one that also sparkles with gospel grace. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. So we will read from verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. It's a larger chunk. We took the first part of it last week. This week we will do 25 to 29. This is the word of God. Praise God for his word. This is God's word. The word of God, not man. Let's read it. But if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach, Others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And here is our text for today. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as Circumcision. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord, and let's ask him consciously and with a focused mind, let's ask him to do great, mighty work among us today as a church. He is the God of awesome deeds, of wondrous acts. He is a God of miraculous power. And so we come to this God, the God who raised Christ from the dead, the God who spoke light out of darkness, the God who brought the glory of the light of the gospel to the hearts of sinners like us. So we're praying to him, asking things In his will. And we know he hears us and we know he will grant to us those things in accordance with his will. Prayed in the name of his son. So let's pray. Father, Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We just praise you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you that we have not been left in our sins, but we have been made children of God, adopted, regenerated, converted, justified, sanctified. We are being sanctified and one day glorified. God, we give you praise this morning. That you have looked upon us in pity. That you have seen us as children of wrath, darkened in our minds, dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, and you in your grace, apart from any work of our own, have changed us justified us and given us Christ, given us His Spirit. So Father, this day we praise You for the Gospel and we ask that You would show us more today the nature of the Christian Gospel, that You would show us more today the the way Your Bible fits together, that we would be encouraged unto good works as a result of our time under Your Word. God, help us. Give us this day that bread which feeds us forever. Christ. Give us this day the food that proceeds from the mouth of God. We pray that you would help us, that you would purge sin from our lives, that you would grant us assurance of our salvation in Christ. And Lord, if there's a person here this morning who is unconverted, not a Christian, Lord, would you be so gracious this morning to make that known to this person or these persons? And would you be gracious, God, in bringing them to the cross of Christ that they might find forgiveness of their sins, a new life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title... For last week's sermon on verses 17 to 24 was safety shattered. The Jews were, put, were putting their hope in the law. They were the recipients of the law. But because they were breaking the law in their hypocrisy, their safety and security is shattered. So Paul wants the Jew to understand, listen. You cannot take safety and security in being a recipient of the law. Because you do not keep it. Only in Christ can safety be found. They cannot hope in the written code. They need Christ and the Spirit. And that's where he will go more explicitly, more emphatically, and in much detail later in the book of Romans. The title for today is Identity Invalidated. Just as Paul shatters their safety in having the law, so too does he invalidate their identity based on physical circumcision. So last week I said that what stands at the center of Jewish identity is the law. They have their law. But we have to put something else at the center as well. It's not just the law that stands at the center of Jewish identity. It is also circumcision. It is also this covenant identity marker called circumcision. And there's a reason why. I had uh, Craig read uh, from Genesis 17. Because there we get the origins of circumcision. We see it uh, unfolded there as Abraham is commanded by God that those in his household and he himself would be circumcised. So Paul is going to the jugular. He's going right. It's a death blow. This is a death blow to the Jewish notion of self-righteous saving of self. He's doing this in order to point them to Christ, the one lifted up that he would draw all men, Gentile and Jew, to Christ. Himself. So, as we look at identity invalidated, there are two things for us to see this morning. These are our two points. So, uh, if if you're, uh, we encourage our kids write down these two points. Let me just encourage you: don't just write down these two points and then and then check out. Uh, but try, children, try to listen, try to grow. And if you start now as a kid, listening to preaching. As you grow older and older and older, when you're an adult, you'll be able to follow preaching more and more and more. This is a time of training for our children that they might be adults who listen to preaching. It's not an apologetic for a a longer sermon, but I've I've said before that if you would have been in a church in the 17th century uh, where Puritans were preaching preaching, would have been a lot more intense and a lot longer. So just a note that in previous ages, sermons have been meaty. Of course, I recognize kids are kids. And so just try as best you can to listen and follow and learn and hear from God. And I trust that God, even though for, for the kids who are listening, even though you may not get much of what is being taught, that God in his sovereignty and in his love would take something and he would pierce your heart. He would change you and he would save you, make you one of his own. So two things to look at this morning. What really matters as we look at circumcision here? What really matters and what truly defines? What really matters and what truly Defined. So let's look first at what really matters. Look with me again at verses 25 to 27. For circumcision indeed, is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So let's just camp out on these verses, try to understand what is Paul saying? What is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying? What really matters. The Jews of Paul's day thought that the answer to that question is having the law and circumcision. That's really what matters. Not only are they the people instructed from the law, as we saw last week, but they are also the circumcised, meaning they are God's covenant people, those who have the covenant sign in their very bodies. As I said before, going back to Genesis 17. They are not, oh, they are not like those uncircumcised Gentiles. Those filthy beasts who don't have the covenant of promise, who don't have circumcision. That is the way commonly that the Jews saw the Gentiles. There was quite a bit of hatred for Gentiles in the hearts of Jews. Quite a bit of animosity. Quite a bit of elevation of self over them. Because as Paul describes in 118 to to 32, they were godless. And what went on in the Gentile world? What went on in ancient Greece? I mean, you know, we, we celebrate people like Socrates and Plato. But when you get down And you realize what they endorsed and the kinds of practices they participated in, sexually and other things, you realize that was a darkened culture. The best of the best weren't so good at all. So we can understand why the Jews would have this kind of elevated sense of self in contrast to the Gentiles. But let me read you a few rabbinical quotes about circumcision. This is how the Jews saw themselves with their circumcision. Listen to a few of these. No circumcised man will see hell. Wow. Get the circumcision? No hell. Circumcision saves from hell. These are The kinds of things the rabbis, the teachers, the leaders of the Jewish people are saying. God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Where is that? I mean, we went through Genesis, I didn't see it. It's not there. And that's exactly what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is attacking all these erroneous traditions and interpretations that had come up from the rabbis, the interpreters. Those not like Ezra, the kind of chief scribe and rabbi, but those who were following men rather than God. Nowhere does it say anything of the sort. Here's another one. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. It would be a terrible situation for Abraham. He's got to sit at the gate of hell instead of be with God in paradise. It's ridiculous. But those are the sorts of things that Paul has in mind as he is speaking to the Jews here in this particular portion of Romans. Now remember, he's, he's not writing this to Jews in the church at Rome. He's writing this to Christians, but he's explaining his message. And so he's, he's taking a hypothetical Jewish person, and he's speaking to that person. Not because those persons necessarily exist in the church in Rome, but because he's trying to use that to explain his gospel. But what does it look like to be the people of God? What does it look like to be a descendant of faithful Abraham? To be truly circumcised. What is it? What really, really matters? That's the question I think that Paul takes up in these verses. And here's the answer. It's very simple. We've seen it already. Obeying God's law. Submitting to His voice. Hearing God and doing what he says. Believing in God and then acting on that faith with works. That's what really matters. That's what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that when a circumcised Jew does not do that, he in essence renders himself uncircumcised. So he invalidates his circumcision by not obeying God's law. Conversely, when an uncircumcised Gentile does obey God's voice, does keep the precepts or moral norms of the law, does love God and neighbor from the heart, then his uncircumcision will be counted as circumcision. This is beautiful, but it would have been so appalling to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish ear. This would have been a slap in the face to the prideful Jewish mindset of the time. A Jew's identity is invalidated and non-Jews are transformed to be that which the Jew is supposed to be. So Paul paints a picture. There's one guy who thinks he belongs to God because he has the sign of the covenant. But God looks at him as an outsider. While a Gentile believer doesn't have the sign of the covenant at all. And yet God renders him as an insider, one of his people. So how do we we relate this to ourselves? As we see the logic here, that's what Paul is doing in these verses. That's what Paul is explaining. So how do we relate this to ourselves? I remember when I was a kid and I would sit in church and they would talk about uh, circumcision and uncircumcision. I just used to be like, what in the world are they talking about? This is so this is so strange or, you know, this is like, like Bible talk that really doesn't relate to me at all. This only relates back then. And sometimes we, we get into these discussions as we go through God's word. And it just seems to be so distant, so foreign to us. So how do we relate this particular argument of Paul regarding circumcision and the Jews? How do we relate this to ourselves? Two things, two things. First, what matters in life is obedience to the Lord. That's it. Now, some of you, for some of you, that sounds odd. Because you've divorced faith and works unbiblically. What matters, the universal message of the Bible. The, the message of the Bible from the beginning till the end. Regarding human beings and God is that what matters in life is obedience to the Lord. The Lord is God. We are his creatures. We are under him. We submit to him. We obey him. We exalt him. That's the message. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. It's always been that way. It has always been that way. Genesis chapter two. I'm gonna take you down a little road going back to the beginning. So just stick with me. Genesis chapter two, verses 16 to 17. Notice the relationship between God and Adam. He says, "The Lord." well, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man. God relates to us With commands. With commands. Because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then chapter 3, verse 17. Notice what God says to Adam. This is key. Notice what God says to Adam. Because you have listened To the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Do you see what the Lord is saying to Adam there? He's saying, You did not listen to my voice. You did not submit to my word. You did not obey my law. You instead elevated the voice, the law, the standard of your wife. And you bowed down to her rather than to me as the Lord God, your maker. And then what do we see with Noah? In chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then Abraham, God tells him to sacrifice his son. He's waited all these years, 25 years, and now God gives him a son and then God comes to him one, one day and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. It's amazing to me the way that the text proceeds after that. I mean, this was, this was if, if Abraham's heart was turned away from God, turned towards self, and filled with idolatry, there is absolutely no way he would have done this. God has given him the greatest gift of all, earthly speaking. Not only is Isaac his precious boy whom he loves, and God even says that, your son, your only son whom you love. Not only does he love him as a father, but in Isaac is the all the promises of God just bowled up in that boy. Everything God had told him he would do for him. And what, is it, what does the text say? It's, it's, it's breathtaking to read the progression of it. It says this, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Do you see that? From Adam to Noah to Abraham, what does it look like to know God? To obey his voice. To obey his voice. That's what really matters. And that's what Paul is saying here to his Jewish children. So how do we obey the Lord? You hear all this obedience language? But how do we obey the Lord? Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul speaks of the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith in Christ. Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who believe, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In other words, the person who believes in Christ, the person who has the Holy Spirit, is a person who from the heart submits to God's law, is not hostile to God's law. So let's get rid of this massive gospel law distinction. Gospel, glorious and beautiful, law, nasty and ugly. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is that through Christ, the gospel of grace through Christ, God writes the law in our hearts so that we become hearers of God's voice and doers of his word. That's what we find throughout the Bible. Listen to what Jesus says, John 6, 28 to 29. What must we do to be doing the works of God, they ask him? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What's Jesus saying? What's Paul saying? What's happening here is when we put our trust in Christ, we begin to have A life in the Spirit that is increasingly more and more conformed to the perfect law keeper, Christ. And from the very core of our hearts, we are worshipers of God. That's what it looks like means to be a Christian. Doers of His Word. Believing in Christ and living in the Spirit fulfills the law. And those who do are saved and they will rise up in judgment over those who thought they were okay because of outward signs of belonging. That's where Paul ends with these verses. So that's the first thing I want us to see as we try to see what we can take away from this for ourselves is that what matters is obeying the voice of the Lord. Christ has saved us unto that. Second, any sign or symbol of your belonging to God Cannot substitute for a life of obedience. Nothing. Baptism? No. Church membership? No. None of these outward things can save you. None of these outward things will stand up in final judgment. Only faith in Christ which produces by necessity a fruitful life lived in the Spirit will save. Saving faith alone saves. Listen to this quote from Kent Hughes reflecting on circumcision. Circumcision was of great value if one understood and lived its intended significance. However, If its meaning was disregarded, it was was as meaningless, listen to this language, it was as meaningless as a wedding ring on an adulterer's finger. What does a wedding ring on an adulterer's finger mean? Nothing. It's a lie. Faith and performance, he goes on to say, gave circumcision its reality. So what Paul does in these first set of verses is he points them away from this outward sign and symbol where they were finding their security, and he points them to the work of God, which ultimately is faith in Christ that produces a life governed by the Spirit that hears God's voice and does it. So that's what really matters. Secondly, let's go to what truly defines Look at verses 28 to 29. What truly defines. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God, what truly defines circumcision? What truly defines a Jew? Who is a Jew anyway? As I've studied these verses, my mind keeps going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's amazing when you read the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus goes back and he upholds and clarifies the true teaching of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come to abolish all of that. He came to fulfill it in himself as the sacrificial lamb, the full keeper of the law, and the one who would pour out his spirit on his people in order that they might keep God's moral law from the heart. And so what Jesus time and time does again is he pulls out these these teachings Imagine them like an antique. He pulls out these teachings of the Jews and they're they're clouded over with all of this muck and dirt and that's rabbinical tradition. What Jesus does is he, he wipes it off. He cleans off all that nastiness to show it for what it really was. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and when he says, I say to you, he's not creating new teaching. He's elucidating the true teaching of the Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. The reason this text comes to my mind is that Paul is drawing attention to something here that had always been in view. Even the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, this idea of a circumcised heart was not something that just came on the scene with Christianity. It's not just that the Jews took something, or the the Jewish Christians, the earliest Christians, the disciples of Jesus, took an Old Testament idea and allegorized it and turned it into something new that had Christian meaning. All along they try to show this has always been the teaching of God's Word. This has always been there. Listen to these passages from the Old Testament about circumcision. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. You would think you read that in the New Testament. It's there, Deuteronomy. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Or Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. Fire. And burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. To have a submissive heart. To have a submissive heart before the Lord rather than stubbornness. And to do away with evil deeds. That is true circumcision of the heart. The New Testament picks up on this idea. In order to explain that those who believe in Christ are the true circumcised. So listen to how Paul describes it elsewhere. This is what Paul has to say about true circumcision. As we understand that circumcision is truly defined here by Paul. Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. By putting off your flesh, remember Romans 8 4, we now are governed by the spirit, not by the flesh. The circumcised person is someone who has cut off the foreskin of their hearts. They've they've chopped that off and put that to the side. The the flesh, the body of sin, the, the ways of evil, stubbornness and obstinacy before the Lord, taken that and put that off. Listen to Philippians 3 3. For we, speaking of Christians, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. The Jews in Paul's day were putting their confidence where? In the flesh. They were putting their confidence in the flesh. They were relying on the outward physical symbol. And to that, Paul says, no, 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 no. no. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. You see the outward, physical, supposed and selective law keeping of the Jews is shown here by Paul to be powerless to save. And powerless to bring God's approval. Isn't that what we desire, people? God's approval? God's approval. The one who has a circumcised heart, who has received grace, By the Spirit. Listen to how Paul ends. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you see how that connects all the way back to verse 7? For those who seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. What does he mean? Those who seek for glory and honor. Glory from the Lord. Honor from the Lord. Approval from the Lord. Praise from the Lord. you see how these verses in chapter 2 fit together? His praise is not from man, but from God. You know, as we close this morning, consider this. Sinners love outward religion. The sinful heart, we, we tend to think of the sinful person or the human being, that's all of us, but those who are outside of Christ, we tend to think of the, the sinner as someone who hates religion. Someone who doesn't want to have anything to do with religion. And certainly in our day, we find this increasing agnosticism and atheism in the culture, cultures of the West and around the world. But that's not the only flavor. And in fact, that's actually a form of religion too. Sinners love outward religion. Why? Religion makes us feel good. It makes us feel balanced. Like there's a spiritual part of us. You know, I mean, with, within all of us, our conscience tells us that to just live for our, our, our phones and our vacations and what we're going to do to our house and, and, and our family and other, other just, just, just the, the rhythms of life and routines of life, and then we die. that There's just something empty about that. Our consciences tell us that. And so we want something more, a spiritual side to life, a more meaningful, deeper side to life. Religion makes us feel balanced, meaningful. But most of all, most of all, religion brings Praise from men. Oh, the praise of men. Oh, how we love in our ears and in our hearts when people praise us, when they commend us, when they tell us how good we are, great we are, what we've done. Praise of men is more intoxicating than any substance on the planet. We love it. We lust for it. We envy it. John 5, Jesus addresses this directly with the religious leaders of his day. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here are a bunch of men in their nice religious decor. Here are a bunch of religious men in Jesus' day who love to walk through the streets and have the people go, ooh, have the people look at them as these great men of God. They love to pray in front of other people. They love to do their deeds in front of, oh, just licking up, just licking up the praise of men. How good that felt. And in fact, they look at each other and praise each other. I praise you. You praise me. We praise each other. That's what Jesus said they lived for. Rather than the praise of God. Matthew 23, 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. The sinful heart, make no mistake about it, the sinful heart loves outward religion. You wonder sometimes, what's going on with these liberal churches? Why do they even try? What do they, they even do? And they gather together and have this sort of uh, syncretism of beliefs. They don't even read the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. They don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in a literal bodily resurrection of Christ. They don't even have a theology. Some of them gather together and give odes to plants and worship uh, plants and so forth. The weird stuff going on. The weird stuff going on today. Why are there any liberal churches? Why are they wasting their time? Because of this. Because religion of any kind. Of any sort. Breeds the praise of men. And it's precious to the. Wicked heart. True religion. By contrast. Is of. The heart. A heart that looks to Christ alone. A heart that is governed. By the spirit. Of God. A heart that is pleasing to the God of Abraham and that seeks his commendation alone, coram deo, before the face of God. This, this is the definition of a real Jew. This is, this is what a real Jew is. Is whether he be Jew or Gentile, and I think this is one of the reasons why Romans nine through eleven. And I can't, I can, I can wait because there's so much good stuff between now and then. But Romans nine through eleven is just so wonderful. It's just so much there in terms of understanding the relationship between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And Paul, he, he has these two sides that he's that he's trying to maintain God's purposes for ethnic Israel throughout history. We see that in Romans eleven, but also the fact that the true Jew is one who believes is a descendant of Abraham. He's trying to sort of hold these two together. It's interesting how he does it. Spread a lot of different interpretations, but here we cannot deny what Paul is saying, and that is this. A true Jew is one who is circumcised in the heart, whether he be Jew or Gentile. A true child of Abraham, a true child of, Of the living God. So let's pray. Let's talk to our father. Let's thank him for his word. And thank him. For circumcising. Us. In the heart. Those of us who. He has saved. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for. Your kindness towards us. Through Jesus. Thank you father for. Giving us. Hearts with which to praise you. And thank you, God, that on that day, you will... It's unthinkable, Lord. You will give praise. You will commend. You will honor your people. It, it's unthinkable, God. What, what honor? What praise? What, what do we deserve? We are nothing. We are dust. Father, we are broken. And even in Christ... We see our sin daily. The closer we get to you, the more wretched we become to ourselves. We see our sin, God. Thank you that not only do you save us from sin, you change the core of our hearts and you increasingly purge us of sin, but one day you will glorify us and as it says here, you will actually praise. Reward. Commend your people. God, we glory in you. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We glory in you alone. May we not glory in the outward symbols of religion. May we not glory in hearing the word, but may we truly trust the Lord Jesus Christ, and truly live by His Spirit. In His name we pray. Amen.